Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, what a great day to be in church. Amen. That uh, was thrilling. <clears throat> awesome time in worship. I'm supposing that the lack of enthusiasm is because there's a lot of Green Bay fans out there, so <laughs> super sorry you had to watch that mess yesterday, but uh, I don't know. If the 49ers win the Super Bowl, I'm going to quit guessing who wins, um, and uh, Lord willing, most of you don't care. There is uh, an important passage we're going to look at this morning, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9. And uh, we're continuing our series here, Daniel, a man for our times. Uh, But this morning is going to be a bit of a deep dive. And I know we've been kind of wading through different things. Uh, We're going to do our very best uh, not to put you to sleep, okay? That's going to be the goal. But I want you to wrap your mind around this because I think that this is one of those passages that not only will uh, change your life if you get this right, you'll be able to see Christ in a unique and special way. It'll change how you share the gospel. It'll change how you look at the world around you. It'll change how you read your Bible. Uh, If you just wrap your mind around what God gives us in this passage and accept that it is true, this is one of the most combated uh, sections of Scripture in the Old Testament. People are trying to redate the book of Daniel because of the accuracy of this prophecy that we're going to look at this morning. They, they, and they cannot get it anywhere near where it needs to be. Multitudes of copies uh, found uh, just within a, a few hundred years of when Christ is born. That's the earliest that they uh, can go with, uh, with their uh, guesses. You cannot find anyone who says today that Daniel must have been written after the time of Jesus because this prophecy is true and no one can tell the future, right? A few hundred years before Christ is born, we see all these copies of the, Daniel, uh, of the book of Daniel as you see them in your hands today. Um, exactly written. This prophecy is in those pages prophesying about Jesus and the moment that he would appear on earth. It's amazing. Now, to help us set the, pay, the stage, though, I want you to think about what's going on in our current culture. Uh, there are a group of people right now who are keenly aware that the end is near. We have a doomsday clock up here. Um, the one on the left uh, is actually from 2002. I don't know if you're aware of what the doomsday clock is, but after World War II, a group of scientists and politicians and leading thinkers got together And they said, we need to give the world some kind of illustration about how close we are to the end, all right? So it's intriguing if you uh, ever watch politicians comment on the guys that are sitting right outside each of their meetings with a sign that says the end is near and they think they're all crazy. Uh, This is what they came up with as their own answer, okay? When it began, it was somewhere around 15 minutes to midnight. 2002, they moved it from 12 minutes to midnight up to 7 minutes to midnight. The most recent doomsday clock has them at 100 seconds to midnight. That means that in the current culture, with the people in power right now that have their finger on the red button that could end it all, 
Scientists, politicians, and leading thinkers say we're in trouble. Are you aware of that? Does it feel to you like the world is getting more sane, more thoughtful, more prepared for longevity? Are we closer to Shangri-La than we've ever been? We have all this technology. We have all of these things. What they found out was they thought the technology was making the world better, smarter, faster, more efficient. They found out that with one glitch, the world can fall apart, and we have no idea how to even find our driveway, much less help, without an iPhone. We're struggling. The world can feel the pressure, but here's the thing that this doomsday clock reveals to you. They can feel the pressure. They can sense what Scripture says is true. The end times will be identified just exactly by the kind of characteristics that we see around us right now. The New Testament is filled with passages like that that speak exactly to this concern. They can feel the pressure, but the world knows no one who can tell the future. Scripture tells us that God knows the future, and he knows what kind of people we should be in order to face the future, and Daniel chapter 9 gives us a glimpse into that. Now, I want you to open in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, and, and I want you just to, to notice this just for a moment, okay, because this is, what, this is a, an illustration, but this is actually pretty critical. Did you know that there are actually gems in your Bible, <laughs> Right? Now, if you just turned on an iPhone or an iPad or something like that, Microsoft and Apple took all your money, okay? So you don't actually have them, but in a paper Bible, there's gems. And this is why I want you to emphasize this this morning. I want you to see this. This morning, we are actually going to pull out one section of Scripture. And what I've taken time to do is look at all of the different research. We've dug this one out of the beautiful pages of Scripture, out of the garden that's right here in our own backyard. If you've got a Bible, you have access to these truths. They're in your hands. We've dug it up. We pulled that out of the ground. We've cleaned it off. We've cut it, polished it, set it. You're going to be looking at a diamond that has been worked on and polished. Now, in the process of unpacking this passage, some of you who have also found some, uh, some uncut gems in your Bible. You're chewing on a prophecy. You're looking at it. You're going to want me to slow way down and to show you how did, how did you cut that? How did you find this truth? How did you find that answer? Where did, where did you get that setting from? And I can't take the time to give you every bit of the details for two reasons. Some of you will get so bored you'll just die. And the rest of you may not be ready to dig into that place. It would take us weeks and weeks. We cannot, in a 30 to 40 minute session, unpack all of the ways. But I want you to follow this trail. I left you some extra pages in the notes. If you want to grab those on your way out on the, our website, we'll have access to that. I'm going to give you a couple clues along the way of where you can get more information. But this should stir you with a hunger, an appetite to dig deeper into your Bible, okay? Are you ready? There's gems in your Bible. We're gonna look at one right now in Daniel chapter nine. We're gonna read verses one through six, verse 11, and then verses 20 through the end of the passage. Let's stand and read this together. Daniel chapter nine. This is what God's word says. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood... 
from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petition with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed, oh Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and who keeps those who keep his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, ancestors, and all the people of the land. Verse 11, all Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Notice uh, just briefly in there, Daniel's talking about all of Israel, but he puts his name in their number. Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before the Lord my God concerning the holy mountain of my God, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, reached me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation, Daniel, I have come right now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petition, an answer went out, and I have come to give it, for you are treasured by God. Amazing statement. So consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. To bring rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Vision and prophecy are two. There are seven different promises. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with plaza and moat, but in difficult times. And after those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end will come with a flood. And until the end... There will be war and desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Do you believe that this prophecy actually came from God? It did. You may be seated. We're looking at a, a prophecy, and therefore prophetic language can sometimes be confusing. I want you to understand, as you listen to some commentators, they say that as they began to study this passage, um, it, it just struck them as confusing, and honestly, some commentators said, I just left still confused. I was reading a bunch of things, and it didn't make sense, so I moved on, and I wrote down, as they do in many of these passages, we win in the end, Amen. I'm not thinking that that's why God wrote this. Remember, if God took the time to inspire something to be written down so that it would land in your Bible, 
then he intended it to take you from darkness to light. And he doesn't give his children just everything cooked and set on the table. There is a benefit in teaching your kids how to grow their own food, right? There is a benefit in teaching them how to process things and how to go out and through a process of chores and bringing in the meal, provide for themselves. There is a process here that is a beautiful one for the believer, if we'll take time. And I think that Daniel is found practicing what he's now asking us to consider. Daniel's process at the very beginning, Daniel was convinced that God fulfilled prophecy rightly understood. For the rest of this message, we'll just call that R-U, rightly understood. Daniel, it says, had been reading the book of Jeremiah. And just leave your finger there in Daniel chapter 9. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 25. And it says that I was considering what God had said to the prophet Jeremiah. We find this prophecy of 70 weeks coming up multiple times and the destruction of Babylon coming up multiple times in the book of Jeremiah. You can find it in Jeremiah 25 and 29 and 50 and 51 in particular. That unpacks all of those statements. But this is where we find this statement that Daniel was praying over and that led to the prayer we see in Daniel Chapter 9, it says this, verse 11 of Jeremiah 25, this whole land will become a desolate ruin, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Now, he's told him, Israel hasn't obeyed my voice. They have not listened to me. I've sent prophets to them. They wouldn't listen. I've told them to respond to my word. They would not do it. I have chastised them, and they've come back to me each time, seeing that I'm the only one that can provide safety, but they refuse to listen. So I'm handing them over to the king of Babylon for 70 years. Verse 12, when the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. This is the Lord's declaration, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, and I will make it a ruin forever. Now he finishes off the rest of that chapter. He unpacks this 70 weeks once again in Daniel chapter 29. That's attached to that famous verse, I know the plans I have for you. Okay, it's God saying, I'm going to fulfill that 70 weeks. In Jeremiah chapter 50, he unpacks yet again what he's going to do in Babylon. And you discover that it's not just going to be in one moment, but it's going to take years. God is sharing with Jeremiah some truths, or with uh, Daniel some truths, as he reads the book of Jeremiah. Daniel is studying God's word, and he believes that God fulfills prophecy rightly understood. That leads him to a prayer. It says that he was studying this in verse 2, the number of the prophet Jeremiah, the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. It says that he was in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth. So where is Daniel? He is in Babylon, but Babylon has fallen. To the best of our understanding, this is two years before a decree would go out to send the people back to Jerusalem so they could rebuild that location. And Daniel or Daniel is reading this prophet Jeremiah, and he says, if your word is accurate, when you say times and seasons, if you put that into Scripture, if what you said is literally true, it's got to be close. 
He says, but I'm sitting in a city here that's owned by Chaldeans, not Babylonians. Babylon didn't fall in a flood. It's still sitting here. And your people aren't any more holy than they were. He said, I'm looking around. And he said, we got to do something about this. So he says, it's within two years. We're going to be going back. And he falls to his knees and he begins to pray. And he says, Lord, I don't know how you're going to reconcile this. We haven't followed you. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets. We still sin. We still run against you. He's looking around, and first he says, it's almost 70 years. Daniel believed that prophecy, rightly understood, will create an anticipation of the activity of God. He believed that if you understand the Bible accurately, you will begin to see things fall in place according to the word of God, and it will create a sense of anticipation that God has not done in history. His fingerprints are, in fact, over every single detail, and that he is moving history to a conclusion that he already knows and has in his hand. Do you believe that God is in control? Do you know that he hasn't just woken up? And we say this over and over again, but he didn't wake up surprised at the mess we're in. In fact, the mess that we are in is in part, part of the plan. Man can't fix himself, and God consistently shows him that when you begin to trust in you and you let go of him, he just lets go of the rope a little bit like a yapping dog that keeps hitting the end of its master's leash, right? He just finally lets go of it and says, all right, you want to fight the big dog? Let's see how that goes. He's been holding back and holding back. He releases them for 70 years to the consequences of their desires. Daniel anticipates, he sees, God, only you could bring us back. We are not strong enough. We're not holy enough. We're not united enough to do anything. But you are God. How will this happen? And he's on his knees. It creates an anticipation of the activity of God. But another thing I want you to see is that prophecy rightly understood will fuel prayer. Now, we don't have time, and I'm really sad about this this morning, to unpack all of this prayer. It's one of the most beautiful prayers in the Old Testament. But in order for us to be able to look at this powerful prophecy that Daniel is given, I just need to make a couple of observations, and then we do touch on this in the Fundamentals of the Faith. It's going on on Tuesdays right now. Um, The basic outline for prayer throughout the Bible is ACT. Um, we got to have the right attitude when we come to God. we got to have the right content when we are praying, and we got to have the right timing. The attitude here is full of humility all the way through. Uh, Daniel is humble. He knows that God is God and he is not, that he can't demand anything of the Lord. But then he begins to unpack um, a confession. He sees his actual sin. Even though he's considered righteous, there's nothing ever negative said about Daniel in all the book of Daniel or in all of the Old Testament. And yet he still is confessing and placing himself alongside Israel. He's not just confessing his sin, but he's identifying with broken people. That's what God calls us to do in every generation. And then he offers a plea at the end and says, Lord God, you wrote these things down so that we would be filled with anticipation. Please, Fulfill your word. Let me see it, he says. I know that you're a God that fulfills these promises. Seventy years is very specific. Please do it. And in that context of the prayer, God begins to move Daniel to a new understanding. 
Prophecy, rightly understood, fuels prayer, but now I want you to see this prophecy. In chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, there is, and you'll note in most of your Bibles, it's indented. Remember, that means it's uh, desperate for you. It's written in such a way that it will stick in your mind, and it wants you to reflect on this as history unfolds. This is Daniel's understanding. This is God's implication for you. He wrote this passage down that you might study it, ponder it, and get a right conclusion. And I'll say this, prophecy rightly understood. Prophecy, are you, has the ability to shock us with its clarity. Now, there are two problems with prophecy uh, when we take a look at it from the world's point of view, okay? In the world, there are people who say they're prophets, they have a prophetic voice, or they say that they are seers, they can see into the future. And we have two problems with the people who consistently say this. One, their accuracy. A guy named Philip Tetlock, you can write his name down, he just wrote a book uh, called uh, Super Forecasting. He did a famous 20-year study. And in that 20-year study, he presented brilliant prognosticators with an opportunity in a 10-year window to either make one-year predictions or 10-year predictions, saying, in 10 years, this will happen, about everything from finances to politics, world boundaries, to concerns in the world, all right? Famous 28,000 predictions that they wrote down based on reading the newspaper and all of the times, and they looked into the future, and this is what they concluded. Tetlock's takeaway was that experts were only about as effective at predicting the future as a bunch of drunk, dart-throwing chimpanzees. They had no idea what they were concluding or what was going to happen in the future even one year into the future. None. Famous study. Accuracy is a problem, but also clarity. There is a famous story about the Oracle of Delphi, and the reason that this is important is because it considers an attack that was going to be made by Croesus against Cyrus, who's in the Bible, who is one of the people who sends out a decree that says you can return to your land. Cyrus was going to be attacked by Croesus, and he goes to the Oracle at Delphi, a famous seer, And ask the question, should I go up and attack this king? And Croesus is told by the oracle at Delphi, if you go to war, you will destroy a great empire. Filled with courage, he goes to war and gets routed. Cyrus trashes him, takes him away in bonds, takes his kingdom over. His entire kingdom is handed over uh, to Cyrus. He sends a messenger back and says, what did, why did you tell me to go to war? And the oracle reminds him, I didn't tell you to go to war. I just said that you would destroy a great empire. The empire was yours. Your empire fell. We have a problem with accuracy. We have a problem with clarity. Because Scripture, if it's telling you about something specific, ought to be clear about its intent. If prophecy is going to be useful, it has to be accurate and it has to be clear. True? Both of these are found in this passage. Now, it's meant for you to do mental work, but the reason it's complicated is he's using language of the day. It would be specific to the time of Daniel and to the leaders at that time. I just want to walk through a couple of things. As you look at that, I want you to see that the angel Gabriel has actually approached Daniel after he is studying a prophecy of 70 weeks And Daniel, in his heart, says God fulfills timelines. 
Gabriel comes to him with another timeline. He approaches him here in verse 24 um, and mentions 77s or 70 weeks are decreed about your people to bring an end to sin and everlasting righteousness. All of these things are going to be brought in at the end of 77s. Now, that's a complicated statement. There, There are four decrees that fit this expectation, 70 weeks about your holy people, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. Verse 25, know and understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So here we have this phrasing, and it just sounds complicated, so we skip over it, but I want you to dive in here. There are four different times in your Old Testament Bible where a decree is made that could fit this expectation. Uh, Cyrus in Ezra chapter 4 verse 1 issues a decree to go back to the land. Uh, Darius confirming the statement of Cyrus in Ezra chapter 6 verses 6 through 12 says you can go back, Jews, you can go back to the land and rebuild the temple. Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 7 actually says, not only can you go, but I'm going to give you everything that you need to build in that place. And the implication of that is, it's not just the temple, but anything you need to protect it. That would be the walls of the city, everything leading up to the temple. And then Artaxerxes, once again, to Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. I think the two most likely to be in view here in verse 25 are both by Artaxerxes, one in Ezra chapter 7 that was made in 457 B.C. We know that from uh, extra-biblical writings as well as from the implications of Scripture. Or Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, that's in 445 B.C. So we have two time stamps that we have on there. So it says, Know and understand from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Scholars all agree that the sevens appear to mean years. Um, I don't have time to unpack all of that. Write into your Bible or into your notes, Genesis 29, 27. This is a Hebrew way of understanding this. Remember, uh, as Jacob is out um, wanting to have a wife, it says that he served uh, a period of sevens, it's the same word that's used here, that Shabuah that is uh, used. Uh, so he serves seven years for her or a week of time, and, and then he's duped by his father-in-law, given the wrong bride, and so he says, finish the week for this one, add one more week for another one, and it says, and he serves seven more years. So it's the timeline that would have been Hebrew in their understanding. It was also a Babylonian and Chaldean way of marking time. So this seven sevens, is actually weeks of years. It's a grouping of seven years. So therefore, 70 times seven equals 490 years. Although Christians typically, and I'm reading here from a page that's in your uh, notes, Christians typically refer to the period of God bringing everlasting righteousness as 70 weeks. They really mean 70 times seven years. The prophecy divides up in a handful of ways. First this, it says, from the time of the issuing of the decree to restore the bill, uh, Jerusalem until the anointed one will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, why would they break that up? Here's something interesting, and I personally believe that 457 B.C., uh, that third timeline there, is the place to start. But 49 years 
after this statement by Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 7. Both Ezra and Nehemiah are focused on the rebuilding of the temple, but uh, at 457 BC, 49 years later, is when the final act of Nehemiah is recorded in extra-biblical history. Um, both Prado and Josephus agree that the final act that Nehemiah did was to finish uh, the walls in Jerusalem, and then he comes off of the scene. 49 years after the decree made by Artaxerxes in 457 B.C., So that's the first 49, so seven weeks and 62 weeks. We still have 434 years left. What happens 434 years later? Well, you ultimately arrive doing all the math, remembering that zero BC is not a time. One BC turns into one AD. You have all of these things that you've got to do to be able to calculate it and bless you as you research this on your own. I've given you some uh, resources. I'll give you some other uh, websites that are available. It's an exciting study, but consistently, this is where you land. If you take that first date and just use regular solar years, no jumping through any hoops, you arrive at 27 AD, where most theologians believe that is the time when Jesus is announced as the Messiah, baptized, and is on the scene. It's during the time of the work of the Messiah. The latest possible date that you get with that 434 years, if you take the second date and do same, jumping through all the hoops, figuring out how many days each year is, you arrive at the time that Jesus is coming in to be crucified in Jerusalem. Now, because you get multiple dates with different authors, some people have been frustrated that they can't just nail it to the day, the date, Uh, The hour, some guy even said the second that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to be crucified. And and the problem I have with trying to get too fine and too accurate is you're going to miss something that is shockingly profound. It says, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointing or the anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. No matter who you listen to, a natural reading and computation of Daniel chapter 9 will lead to a termination date within the earthly ministry of Christ. You have a five-year window. That is shocking. You have multiple different people who calculate these days and they research this. There are so many who have done that. But this is the thing that I want you to wrap your mind around. Jesus arrived and is the only person qualified to be the Messiah. He arrived exactly when this scripture said he would arrive. That's the window, a five-year window. And only Jesus could fulfill those prophecies. It is so accurate. There are two things that you can't do within modern Judaism today if you're going to go uh, to the synagogue. You will not hear a reading of Isaiah 53 in their normal cycle of reading because it looks like Jesus and it creates confusion. And you're not allowed to even touch, pick up the scroll of Daniel with regards to the marking of the years because it creates confusion. Do not consider the days. It's actually a law. Don't study it. Why? Jesus is the only one that could fulfill this prophecy. It's Jesus. This is a shocking thing. Prophecy, rightly understood, has the ability to shock us with its clarity. Let me just point a few other things out, and I want you to wrap your mind around something. 
Prophecy, are you, rightly understood, has the ability to unlock other passages of Scripture. When you understand Daniel, you understand that he was studying other passages. He was studying Jeremiah, and he took God literally. He took numbers literally, and he said, if you said that, and this is coming true, then when you use a literal interpretation and look at that in going into the future as I read Scripture, then I can trust when you use timelines once again. If God said it, he's going to accomplish it. Amen? Now, we may be confused at times. We may have to look back. There were times that the Messiah is looking at his people, and he says on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, Oh, you slow of heart to believe all that was written about the Messiah. You're slow of heart. Why? It just seems too amazing to be true. But nonetheless, God keeps his word. As you begin to read these passages and you see how it was that God unlocked this one, you will see how he is going to unlock future passages. Prophecy, rightly understood, has a profound apologetic power. I wish I could take you there, but there's an amazing website that actually does all these calculations, gives you great options and consideration. It's done uh, by a team at Revelation Logic, but the author of that series that first made it happen is a guy named Jerry. Jerry at Revelation Logic has this to say, I would still be an atheist today except I took time to review the prophetic evidence that supports the Christian faith. He said, people kept telling me that there was prophetic evidence. He said, I was a a glad atheist. I believed in science. I believed in math. I worked with numbers. I was working with a a PhD student uh, at high levels, and they challenged me to take a look at the prophetic evidence. And he said, I did not believe any such thing as prophecy could exist. He says, I'm so convinced now. I, I spend all of my extra time focused on prophetic statements in the Old and New Testament. He says, God is shockingly accurate, and he is calling us to be aware of the times that we live in. It not only changed his life, but he uses it as a way to reach those that are lost. And finally, Prophecy RU has the ability to confirm our faith. The scriptures' accuracy regarding Jesus' first coming builds and confirms our hope in his second coming. Jesus said that he is coming again, and he made statements just as accurate about the times that we would see, the things that would happen, the kind of stuff that would be building up around us before his return. He said he's coming again, and these prophecies that he was basing his life on in the first time all came true. The promise that he is coming again, not just by Jesus, but by those other prophets that were around him create an anticipation in our own hearts that he is coming again. It confirms our faith. When we see that he is accurate, we trust him. You know, in our house, uh, on a regular basis, we will lose things. I don't know if you're like this. You set something down, and then immediately you have no idea where it is, right? Even if it's right next to you. Uh, But we've always had uh, one person in our household, a page, who who consistently, if we set something down, she already knows where it is. She just is kind of keeping a a mental note of everything you've dropped, and she's looking around and is observant. And uh, so what we end up doing at first, we say, hey, has anybody seen my, and you know, fill in the blank, my my glasses, my Bible, my whatever it is. Oh, yeah, it's over here, or it's under the dog bed, or yeah, it's in that shelf over there. I think you cleaned it into that cabinet. You know, I just sees it, knows. Now, what do we do? We just don't go to everybody else. We just go straight to her. Hey, have you seen this? 
Why? Because accuracy in the past leads to help in the future. It's the same way with your Bible, folks. God has been right over and over and over and over again. In fact, we should be embarrassed to wonder whether he'll be right again. He is accurate. And when we see his accuracy, when we see his heart, when we see his desire for us unfolded in the pages of Scripture, it makes us trust his word that he will see it through. He's got you in his hand. He's in control of the future. You can trust him. Daniel was convinced that God fulfilled prophecy. Are you? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take this short, uh, quick dive into these pages in Scripture, that you would take um, these moments and drill them into our heart. Father, there are so much that we left on the bone. Uh, There are so many things that we could not finish unpacking. So we ask right now that what you would do is take uh, just these breadcrumbs and lead us to a deeper faith, a passion for your word, a conviction that you still answer. Father, there are promises in your word where you put literal timestamps on things. At the end of Daniel's prophecy, there's still yet another seven years that all the rest of your word indicates are yet to be fulfilled. There's a gap in the middle where we are allowed to come to faith to you and then see you fulfill your word perfectly. Father, we profess that we don't understand all the time how you do things, but we trust you to get it done. We praise you and ask that you would not just cause our hearts to be warm, but help us to be under deep conviction as we share the truth with a lost world. You are the God that has the answers, and you promise to bring us safely home if we'll put our faith in you. So give us that faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.